You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Talk about 2008. It was obviously the kickoff to the great financial crisis. It was a horrible year for a lot of investors, but not for our next guest. Phil Taze managed to keep his head above water, or just barely, right? 2008, uh, Taze was down just 3%. The rest of the market was down 41%. Wow. Um, he did just as well, maybe uh, better. He returned money in 2000, and the benchmark lost 13%. Uh, in the beginning of the pandemic, he was also smart enough to get out right away in March and didn't get back in until mid-April. He joins us now, Phil Taze. Uh, he runs Taze Asset Management. Phil, how do you manage, how do you navigate these choppy waters? Um, it's been, 2022 was awful as well. Um, how was the year for you and what are you doing in 2023? Yeah, so 2022 was a, a pretty good year for us on a relative basis. People don't like relative returns, though. They like absolute returns. Well, but only so we, people so, who didn't lose money don't like relative right. terms, right? So we lost less. Uh, but what what we do is as a core principle is we try to create ways to people for people to be in markets, participate in financial asset appreciation, but address the contingency that they may go down. And I think that's what's so fascinating about this marketplace is that Gene Fama, with his oppressive amount of data that support the uh, efficient market hypothesis, suggests that you should always be invested no matter what. What that does is it creates amazing contrarian plays, right? Because if the entire world thinks that you should be fully invested at 30 times earnings, and it's pretty obvious that markets are gonna go down at some point, then if you create a mechanism uh, to de-risk, that is helpful. So what, what is it? And you're probably looking for more detail. What we do is we have two ways of hedging against risk. One is trend-following algorithms that just move us out of the way in the beginning parts of declines. This has been pretty liable, reliable historically. We've been doing it since 96, as you pointed out. So it, you know, it's got a good track record, but we also use options and creative ways to both use options to hedge, but also figure out ways to pay for those options. 
Nice. So what is your go-to hedge at the moment? I felt like in 2022 was you buy the dollar, you buy commodities, you are set. What What's the hedge in 2023? Well, so ours is less complicated than you might imagine. We're, we're not, what we're not doing is creating uh, complex hedge, hedge fund strategies. What we are doing is just investing in conventional types of things, stocks and bonds, high yield bonds. Uh, and the way we hedge right now, we're actually almost fully allocated, right? Bonds, stocks and bonds have been moving up decently this year. We're back in the markets, but we're very close. We're a hair trigger away, where if the market turns lower, it penetrates our target sell level for at least our trend following algorithms, we'll scale out of the markets and we'll go to sometimes investment grade bonds, but if bonds are getting battered as well, we'll be fully in cash instruments. Yeah, I mean, we um, have seen a little bit of a turnaround the last couple of days. I know the S&P 500 came in below its 200-day moving average, and we snapped a bunch of winning streaks that we've seen. Also, warnings from some big big investors, Howard Marks, was on with Romain Bostic the other night and said he thinks it's the possibly the end of the junk rally, or at least we're um, fully priced there. Yeah, so fairly I would, priced, fairly valued. You know, if you look at the downturns we've seen since the financial crisis, including the financial crisis, they've lasted as long as 16 months. I would guess that the marketplace as a whole just has this sense that it's over, that the downturn is over. We've had a you know a 12 month horrible market for both asset core asset classes. But I think the thing that is a real challenge for most investors, the vast majority of people listening to this show, is that it's not over. And really, if, if you have a big percent decline without a long duration, it doesn't matter that much as long as you don't sell. But once you start to stretch out to two years or three years, people that need to take uh, income from assets, and that includes bonds, of course, where the people have losses, start to be negatively affected. So if you ask what gets you back in the workforce when you're retired, when you don't want to be, it's that multi-year decline. So I think, you know, looking at valuations in the stock market, uh, just looking at all of the challenges, uh, one of them being uh, global debt. And, you know, and you're, and you're just talking about the fact that everyone's so focused on this binary question about what the Fed's going to do. I think it's because it really matters and there's a lot more risk in the marketplace than there historically has been. I mean, also been. because, you know, we could be looking at an absolute sea change. I make fun of Critty's youth because, A, I'm jealous. You should be. Um, and B, <laughs> she's smarter than everybody else. So you got to pick something, right? But the last time we had interest rates above zero, she was on juice boxes and snackables, oh my you know? <laughs> It's, it's been it's been a solid oh, generation of extraordinary monetary policy. And now are we just back to something that none of us is really used to anymore? Well, it's interesting. As you say that, it sounds like, oh, we're going to get back to normal. But I don't think there's a normal right now, because if you think about wh when were we last at 100 times uh, or 100 percent of uh, debt to GDP on a on a fiscal debt level in the United States back in the back in after World War Two, right? Well, what was the GDP growth following that? Around 8% a year yeah. for two decades. Yeah. So we have these sort of uh, existential crises, these things that are really fascinating things to think about, but potentially perilous to live through that are going to be with us. And we're going to have to you know, fight our way through. And so I, I think that it, it pays to start to think unconventionally, start to think about, okay, yeah, Gene Fama is right. Normally, you should just stay invested in the markets. But how can we address? And this is everyone just wants to bet on the optimistic scenario, right? Just stay invested, conventional portfolio. But how can we address the contingency that one of two things happens that could both happen together? First, that rates could continue to go higher and we have more persistent inflation. 
You know, inflation in the United States, if you look back at the last three episodes of the last 100 years, it lasted between four and nine years, not 12 months, yeah. right? So we could have more persistent inflation, higher rates, which has caused bonds to lose, and also that we could test the lows and break a lot lower in the stock market. So don't bet on that, but address the contingency of that. Well, you were speaking about the credit market earlier, and I want to circle back to that, because if you are worried about the risk and the recession, it doesn't feel like credit markets are really pricing that in when you're looking at spreads um, on the surface. I mean, investment grade spreads for our audience on downturns usually go to about 200 basis points. We're nowhere near there, even on high yield, 800 to 1,000 basis points. Again, we are nowhere near there. So, Critty, this is the same imaginary friend we've had for the past year, which is the Fed pivot, right? Uh, and so everyone still, I mean, we started out no inflation, then transient inflation, now inflation. And all along the way, we were not thinking the Fed was going to be raising rates as much as they have. So it's really just the same story played out in 2023, where everyone's assuming the Fed's not going to act as much as they are. But then they do. And then we potentially realize the consequences. I'm keeping that one. <laughs> Imaginary friend is the Fed pivot. I love that. <laughs> you started, by the way, the uh, Behavioral Investing Institute. And we've been talking for a uh, couple of days now pretty seriously about the consumer because the big banks were out with earnings, right? So we're all watching savings rates, banking balances, credit card usage. What do you think about the U.S. consumer right now? Uh, it's, it's pretty strong. It's I mean, a different I think, kind of behavior, right? Yeah. Than the investor behavior. Consumer right. behavior is a whole, uh, a whole nother ball of wax, right? Right. And I think that's a good indicator that, that maybe markets haven't bottomed. I mean, when when you've got lines around the corner for $15 salads and you know everything else seems to be you know dur durable good for big big goods purchases are still pretty impressive i think it indicates that the mindset of bear market or crash or recession has not set in and that means probably once people realize that it may that'll be a negative for markets all right uh, you have i guess founded a new holiday how do you how do you uh, put this into words you have established um, <clears throat> An inaugural National Investment Risk Management Day. What what are you trying to do? Increase financial literacy? Well, it started out as our head of education and training, Dan Coleman, came up with the idea. It's actually on my birthday, which was yesterday. Happy, and, birthday. happy birthday. Thank you. Or happy afterbirth day. You have to say afterbirth separately. Anyway, uh, so... Uh, and and we, it was sort of a an austere suggestion that, ever, that uh, investors should look at their portfolios and address risk. And we were talking to our PR team, and I said, "Let's let's let's make this fun." Mm. And what I what we did is I rewrote the press release myself, and it became like, "Oh my God, what are we doing?" And so now every year we're going to try to address what are the three stupidest investment ideas that right. we've had. Yes, I, I'm going to I'm going to tweet out uh, the press release for you. Phil Taze from Taze Asset Management. Great having you on the program. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. We've heard, you know, uh, layoffs coming out of Microsoft. We've heard layoffs coming out of Amazon. Um, 
What's Salesforce, the furniture? Salesforce, Wayfair. Wayfair. There you go. So tons of these West Coast companies. Let's bring in Anurag Rana right now. He covers tech for Bloomberg Intelligence. Anurag, what, what are we seeing in tech? Is it fair to say that this is the beginning of a, a wave of layoffs? I don't know if it's a beginning or we are in the middle leaning, but um, you know, if you look at it over the last three to five years, a lot of these companies have, you know, some of them have doubled their headcount. Some of them have gone even, you know, more than that. And that was driven by a lot of demand that we saw in the pandemic. But if we see this year, tech spending is going to slow down, cloud businesses are going to slow down. And then if you want to maintain your margins and be, you know, have the right size, uh, um, I would say, workforce, you will see some layoffs. So, you know, let's say the case of Microsoft, a 5% decline in headcount uh, head is not that big of a deal when you have doubled your headcount in five years. But then what happens when, is this kind of a, a scenario where it's one step backwards in terms of headcount only to kind of release the valve for the next few years? Is that kind of the way to look at this? It will, a lot will depend on what kind of demand we see next year or what kind of rebound we'll see. Now, if there is a lack of demand, then you're not going to see massive hiring going in. But if the demand comes back like we expect it will, you're going to see a massive acceleration in buyback or uh, hiring at that point. Yeah. Because there is a very strong correlation of revenue growth and employee growth. It's usually, you know, very close to one to one or point uh, one to point nine. But what, especially at Apple, sauce um they are sorry alphabet they are not only <laughs> laying job. off six and a half percent of their workforce we saw reports on cnbc the other day that they're pushing out bonuses yeah um and this is pretty harsh i mean normal people even if you're not supposed to rely on bonuses as a way to cover living expenses so if you all of a sudden say in the middle of january hey we know you're used to getting your whole bonus now, but we're only going to give you part of it and the rest of it in two months. That screws up a lot of people's, uh, you know, bill paying abilities. You would only do that if you were in some kind of trouble, wouldn't you? Um, they did generate a lot of free cash flow. A. B. Um, unlike Amazon's, you know, workers in warehouses, the people who work at Google are not struggling. They make a lot okay, of money. Okay, fair point, fair point. I mean... There probably are some people who don't make a ton. They're not all programmers, I, I, right? I'm, I'm fairly, uh, fairly confident that the average compensation uh, throughout the ecosystem is way over, you know, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars over there. Well, hopefully they don't have too many kids in private schools. I don't know, man. Eighty percent of three hundred to four hundred thousand, still a pretty uh, decent. So, cut. If, so let me let me back up. Let's say go three to four years. These the tech workers have had a bonanza over the last several years, from stock options to really high raises because of the shortage of labor. And I can assure you right now, even for almost every category in technology, if yeah. you break down database administrators, software engineers, um, AI uh, developers, all of them are in massive demand right now so other industries out there you know whether it's energy industries manufacturing well, anywhere they're, they're going to be hired without a problem well Anurag, uh this rings a lot of bells when it comes to and you might not be able to answer this but tell me if this is in the discourse here are people talking about things like immigration when it comes to hiring right now i mean <laughs> i'm thinking like my parents tech boom of the 90s here uh going into computer engineering what happens when that immigration standard is uh dropped down or made more complicated. So I did a big report six, seven years ago, um, you know, about the restrictive immigration policy and what it would do. And one the of my- Trumpian policy that Biden really hasn't turned around. Yeah, yeah I, I was surprised at that. And, uh, you know, one of my predictions was Canada is going to really benefit from it. And we have seen a massive boom of immigrants and for that matter, a massive tech 
center near Mississauga because of that, because of a lot of the immigrants going there and creating uh, development centers for software companies. But le let me assure you this thing, you know, from a tech unemployment rate, we are still way past full employment. This, you know, if, if you have added, let's say for Microsoft's case, I'll tell you, in the last five years, they've added 100,000 people. Letting go of 10,000 people is, is, is not that big of a deal in my view. All right, well, hopefully those 10,000 people see it the same way because Sundar Pishai is taking full responsibility and he apologized. And I just can't imagine this generates a lot of positive sentiment towards him running the company. You know, even if you're making 400,000, if you got three kids and you got a $10,000 mortgage, I mean, I realize you're living large, but it's still kind of hurty. Yeah, children are expensive. All right, uh, we're going to continue to talk about the layoffs on the West Coast. They're really global layoffs, as well as the winning quarter that Netflix had. The stock is up, again, 6%. Let's bring in right now um, our Bloomberg intelligence analyst, Poonam Goyal, joins us. She is senior analyst for uh, e-commerce, as well as athleisure and off-price retail. That is a hell of a roundup there. And then Mandeep Singh, senior analyst for tech companies. He covers all those tech companies that touch the uh, consumer, like applesauce. Mandeep, let me start with you. Uh, these layoffs from Google, and I, I want to get your take also on the kind of, I feel a suspicious name change. I know it's been years now, but I still haven't forgiven them for it. What do you think? Well, so look at how much these companies have grown in terms of employee base. Google or Alphabet, for example, has added about 50,000 employees in the last two years. Now, granted, they were growing out of, uh, you know, their top line growth was also north of 20%, and their operating profits also doubled in this period. The question that you have to ask the management right now is, what were they forecasting in terms of, you know, future growth? And I think that's where all these large tech companies got it wrong in terms of just, you know, what is the projected top line growth? And in, in the case of Alphabet specifically, it's a search business that subsidizes everything else, whether it's cloud, YouTube, their hardware ambitions. And none of those other segments actually is uh, close to being profitable, barring maybe YouTube. And, and so that's where I think they're realizing that search is obviously maturing. And we have all sorts of problems with the digital ad environment right now. And they just can't maintain that profitable growth anymore. And uh, I think, I mean, again, in terms of the headcount, it's still 12,000 versus 50,000 they have added in the last two years. But it just goes to show that this period if you look back, was unprecedented in terms of tech hiring. Yeah. Well, Mandeep, uh, it's interesting to find that this this tech story just continues to unravel at a time when almost the share prices are almost being rewarded by it. And, and it really comes down to a question of cost efficiency. Of course, we do feel for the folks who are uh, getting laid off, of course. But I want to fold in the retail side of the story as well. Poonam Goyle also joins us from Bloomberg Intelligence because it's not just Alphabet that came out with this news. Wayfair also announced job cuts. And Poonam, I wonder, is it the same dynamic in the retail space that Mandeep is talking about in the tech space? A little bit of it is the same. You know, if you look back to Wayfair, the number of employees they had in 2018, it was about 12,000. 
And as of the latest 10K, it's about 16,500. So definitely, it's, you know, a big step up in employees. And as they scale back roughly 1,750 employees now, it's just really a measure to get costs back in line. All retailers across the board are struggling to drive profitability as sales have come off following pandemic boom, especially for Wayfair, where, you know, the home is where people invested at the peak of the pandemic. That's where your funds went. And Wayfair benefited from that. And as all that pulls back, even though they are in a secular shift where they will benefit from the move from stores to online, sales have dwindled. And now the move is towards profitability. So for them to get to their goal of EBITDA neutral this year, um, they needed to cut these costs. They had to cut a billion and a half dollars roughly. And half of that is through the employee cuts. Well, Poonam, we'll stick with that story because I almost wonder, and Mandy, I'll get to you in just a moment, but I almost wonder how much of these uh, layoffs are really some sort of dynamic of one step backwards to kind of be cost efficient in the short term only to kind of prepare for mass hiring as we talk about a new economic expansion. Do you see that dynamic playing out in the retail space over the next couple of years? Not for Wayfair, because if you look at the composition of their cost cuts, so the 1,750 employees that they talked about cutting today, the bulk of that is in corporate. So, um, you know, you can argue that when they weren't in their peak growth mode, which was largely, you know, they went from $1.3 billion in revenue to $5 billion um, in 2017, so 2014 to 2017, and now they're approaching about 12 to $13 billion. So massive growth, but the hiring that they're pulling back isn't at the warehouse level largely. It's it's our corporate, right? If you think about the number of employees that yeah. they're letting go of, so I don't I don't think that we will have another massive increase, um, especially also as retailers and brands are largely right now looking at automation to help alleviate some of these growing costs. You know, wages are rising, rents are rising, transportation expenses, shipping, everything is up um, in multiple folds. So I, I think they'll just be looking at automation more as they continue to grow the business to save costs. Mandeep, is there a risk um, that some of these, at least some of these companies, and we've got a list now too long for me to mention of tech companies that are cutting, cutting you know, double-digit thousands of jobs, is there a risk that things go better than expected and they have to turn around and hire back again after having tarnished their reputations? I don't think so. I think this is a sort of, you know, downturn where clearly in hindsight, there was a pull forward, both in terms of growth and profitability. And that's why these companies ended up in this position where they overhired. So in my mind, even if we have a shallow recession or slowdown and things rebound, they have learned their lesson. And I doubt they're going to do it again in terms of, you know, the hiring spree they went uh, on in terms of, you know, just the talent wars that transpired and and now it's the same with layoffs. Every company is doing it uh, the same way they hired uh, all these people. So I don't think we are going to see a return of that anytime soon. Mandy, 30 seconds here. Very quickly, do you see the stock market or these share prices really benefiting from more and more of these layoffs? Well, so they will come out of this downturn. I don't know how long this is going to be uh, much stronger. And the businesses that do survive, again, not every company is going to be in the same position as they were before. But the ones they uh, do survive and their competitive mode is intact will be more profitable uh, down the line. 
All right, Mandeep Singh, senior analyst for technology at Bloomberg Intelligence, and uh, Poonam Goyal as well, senior analyst for e-commerce, athleisure, and off-price retail, but really kind of techie there as well from BI. Great to have both of you on the program. What a day for for tech, for uh, West Coast firms acting globally in terms of um, their layoffs, in terms of their headcounts. A lot of them with massive headcounts. Amazon had like 2 million people working for them, and a lot of them with big cuts in percentage terms. Um, Alphabet cutting 6% of its workforce. We're going to continue talking about these markets. We're on an uptrend. This is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. We've been talking a lot this week about the reopening of China, especially as it relates to commodities. Um, remember the dream I had uh, at the beginning of the week, Curry? Yes, with Jeff Curry. Yeah, I had, this, I had this dream that I was at a diner with Jeff Curry from Goldman Sachs, and we were pitching some investors on commodities. Because his story, I thought, was so good, or his premise, that the reopening of China, plus a not-so-bad not economic outlook in yeah. Europe, plus a slowdown in the Fed, would just drive commodities prices higher. I lived through this in 2007, 2008. I saw... You know, oil go up to 146 a barrel for West Texas Intermediate, and it was pretty amazing. I want to bring in Nick Statmiller right now. He is uh, the head of global product over at Medley Advisors, and he joins us now in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. Nick, what's your take on having had a lot of experience internationally um, in the Middle East, wa watching what goes on in Asia on the China reopening? What does this mean for global markets? Well, thanks, Matt. We're actually uh, a bit more optimistic than the consensus. We think full-year growth in China is actually going to come in north of 5%, which is a bit higher than the market consensus. But this is going to be a different kind of recovery than what you've seen in China in previous times. Uh, you mentioned the post-GFC recovery in China, which was very infrastructure-led and investment from government spending. But China actually already did a lot of infrastructure uh, stimulus last year, and they're unlikely to repeat that. And the housing market is getting slightly better, but coming in on a pretty low base. But it's going to be consumption that's going to lead this one, which is very different. Chinese uh, consumers have 13% of GDP in excess savings right now. And as that economy opens up, we really look for uh, Chinese uh, consumer demand to grow quite a bit. Well, we there's I think a couple of things that we shouldn't lose sight of. One is that not everybody expected China to cancel COVID zero so quickly and so soon. Um, so that's kind of a surprise to investors, or it has been, you know, now a two-month-old surprise. But also, they have been working hard to build up this Belt and Roads Initiative, uh, you know, basically priming trading partners, especially in Europe and Africa, Europe, the Middle East and Africa. How, what kind of dividends is that going to pay as they open up? Well, on the domestic side, I, I think that... Uh 
you know, it did catch a lot of people off surprise uh, by surprise. And our China analyst says that this was, you know, largely due to some domestic pressures. Uh, and so rather than trying to flatten the curve, they're basically just steepening the curve on COVID and saying, let everybody get it and let's reopen and move on. Uh, so that's the domestic story. On the foreign story, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative has, has hit a lot of snags over the years. And especially right now, you have several African countries uh, deep in distress, and then Pakistan and Sri Lanka, who are also pretty big uh, beneficiaries, having some serious problems uh, with their debt sustainability. So it's probably going to be a pretty bumpy road, I would say, in terms of China's foreign investments and sort of reaping those long-term dividends. Uh, at least in the short term, I, I don't think that they're going to see a lot of benefit from the Belt and Road uh, investments that they've made. Well, one of the, I'm going to go back to Matt's dream here, slash the street call from Jeff Curry. One of the reasons he's so bullish on this uh, commodity super cycle uh, that he he says is going to come is this idea that he's comparing the Chinese reopening specifically to something similar that we saw in 2008, 2009, this kind of massive stimulus package we saw back then. Is that a fair comparison to make? Are we expecting Chinese demand, domestic demand to really come to that level? Well, I, I think the story is, again, the consumption led by the excess savings, the fact that you have, you know, the Chinese consumers who just haven't been able to travel or do a lot of things that they wanted to. So one of the places you're probably going to see a big pickup in demand is in jet fuel. And there are a lot of interesting proxy trades that our clients have been uh, looking at to play reopening uh, in China. One of them is to go long the Thai bot. Uh, because of uh, increased tourism into Thailand uh, as oh, Thailand opens okay. and Chinese consumers start getting out again. Um, but in terms of the other metals, I think because infrastructure is going to be less a part of this recovery than what you've seen back in uh, 2008 and 2009, it's probably not an immediate fill up to some of the industrial commodities um, in the same way that it was in the past. But there are some, you know, over the medium term, over the next decade, there are some other reasons to be quite excited about copper and some other commodities. But I don't think it's the China reopening story this year that does it. So how do you model something like that? If your numbers are still perhaps a little bit confusing when it comes to the death rate, when it comes to the case counts coming out of China, how do you model a timeline? <laughs> it's, it's not easy is the short answer. But I think you know, around what actually happens with consumer confidence in China, because that's a big problem. You have lockdowns and then you have sort of self-imposed isolation where people yeah. don't want to travel because they're afraid of catching COVID. Uh, our China analyst uh, seems to think that because it's just been such a long time and people have been so cooped up and the Chinese government are really trying to push that confidence and that this will probably happen a lot faster than some of the reopenings in the West did, and that you'll see a, a quicker return uh, to normal uh, consumer patterns. That almost feels like something we saw, I want to say in the UK, actually, when everyone was so cooped up, they were like, you know what, we're just going to go out and live revenge, our lives. Revenge travel. Sort of, but it, became, mean, it, came from the, it came from the government as well, right? They were like, all right, we're done. Yeah, well, the, even before they let the rest of the population yes, out. Yes, that's true. <laughs> well, what about the um, the Fed, which is such an important part of you know, the, the global picture, there seems to be kind of a binary bet. Either you believe that the Fed is going to raise rates and hold them high, or you think they're going to have to cut or won't even be able to get to 5% a la Jeff Gundlach. What do you think over at Medley? Well, our, our house view is that the Fed is going to get at least to five and probably five and a quarter. Uh, and, you know, we take the Fed at their word. And uh, all the Fed officials have uniformly said that they don't anticipate to ease uh, this year. We think the, the most likely condition if they do go back on that would be a significant deterioration in the labor market. 
But despite, you know, inflation coming down and, you know, bad retail sales, bad industrial production numbers out of the U.S., the labor market still looks really strong. So I think we're quite a ways away from seeing a labor market that's weak enough that the Fed might uh, um, contradict themselves and end up uh, cutting this year. So we're looking for rates to stay at five or higher into the end of 23. Yeah, we, we've, we've gotten some pretty depressing uh, news out of the specific companies today. Um, Alphabet cutting six and a half percent of its workforce this week. You know, Microsoft cutting five percent of its workforce. Amazon laying off 18,000 people. But you don't see that uh, in the labor market data yet. Three and a half percent unemployment, more than 10 million job openings and the jolts. When, when do we start to see that come in? I think it's going to be a while. And, you know, the, the big tech companies and a few of the big banks have been making headlines because of these job cuts. But it seems for the time being to be rather limited to just a couple of sectors. And then you talk to people in a lot of services industries and they're you know, just constantly talking about how hard it is to find. They still can't people. get employees. Yeah. So at the aggregate, it doesn't really look like a job market where people are really worried about losing their job. By the way, the M Live question of the day. Do you see evidence of a wage price spiral? No. That's what I thought. I thought that's an easy question to answer, but that was, did you see it, Curdy? That was their question I today. didn't see the question, but I, I, I also don't see it. I have to agree with you on that one because they're coming down. Yeah, right? and also, I mean, we've seen wages rise clearly, um, you know, more than they have in the past, but they haven't, those increases haven't even kept up with inflation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we think we have about a minute left with you, but I've got to talk about, to you about LATAM uh, here I want to know how you play Brazil, Argentina. Is it worth having exposure right now, given the geopolitical uncertainty there? Well, particularly in Brazil, there's been a lot of turbulence uh, around uh, Lula taking office and, of course, the storming uh, of, the, uh, of the capital by Bolsonaro supporters. Um, also some concerns that Lula uh, might take a more populist tact uh, with uh, economic management. But our Brazil analyst uh, thinks that these worries are a bit more, uh, a bit overblown, and that over the next few months we're going to see more orthodox policies out of Lula's new team. Uh, so we, we have a fundamentally constructive view on Brazil at the moment, especially if you get a, a nice pickup to oil and some other commodities uh, in the coming year. Argentina has always been sort of a difficult uh, distress case, and we were talking about this at the break. And I, I just find it very hard to believe that. A new government in Argentina later this year is just magically going to be able to solve all their debt problems. So I'm a bit more cautious there than I am in some of the other countries in the region. All right. Great to have you on the program. Thank you so much for coming in to the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Always great when we can do stuff live. Nick Statmiller um, there. He is the head of global product over at Medley Advisors. We did just get uh, that news from the Wall Street Journal. The Federal Reserve probing Goldman's consumer business. It is moving the market, by the way. The shares of Goldman Sachs, to Denise's point, down about 2.2%. It was higher earlier in the session. By the way, coming on a day that you're seeing a lot of green on the screen in the market, who better to break it all down, give it some context, than our very own Wall Street correspondent, Shanali Basic, right here in studio. Walk us through the context here. What do we need to know? So a few months ago, we ourselves reported that the Fed had questions about this consumer business operation 
situation at Goldman Sachs. Now, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that the probe itself has uh, concerns around proper monitoring and control systems inside that consumer business. Now, listen, when we think about Marcus, when we think about the broader consumer business over at Goldman Sachs, we have not yet really thought about it in terms of any potential compliance and audit functions. Listen, Goldman is a massive bank with some of the uh, like the most uh, you know impressive lawyers in the world, right? But um, when we did think about Marcus and consumer, really the problems that have been pretty public, and David Solomon said this himself, is I grew too fast too soon, uh, and it came at the expense of execution. So you know, the, really the problem execution here, or compliance. Well, that execution, and that's the thing. That's execution what the, of compliance. Execution of, of profitability of the business. So that's why the compliance issue here raised by the Wall Street Journal and the Federal Reserve here, according to their reporting, uh, is that the compliance, audit, and legal functions that, that would be separate from a lot of the Marcus reporting we've been doing. It is interesting that the Fed is reviewing this business as Goldman is kind of winding it down. Because it's not like, you know, at first I thought, oh, they have seen the error in their ways. Um, not that I know as much about you. Uh, you know a lot about, about me. it as, as you, not that I know <laughs> as much about it as you do. You know, you're all over this story. Um, you know, I just read your reporting, but it does seem it did seem like at first they were just closing this down because it wasn't a profitable business. It wasn't a great idea. Allison Williams has been against it since day one, and she's our chief banks analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. On the other hand, um, it is is interesting that the Fed is reviewing this because it may be a different motivation for them to wind down the business. Maybe they've had problems there that we weren't aware of. Uh, listen, they they have an investor day in a couple weeks here at the end of February. But I would say that you have to think about, you know, the other problems that Marcus has had. You said winding down the business. You have to understand, very importantly, they're not winding down the whole business. They're winding down certain parts of the business, particularly the Marcus lending business. Another interesting part of that business is how they get rid of that portfolio of loans. Is it just a wind down? Do they look to sell those loans? How does this current probe impact that? Remember, this is an era under the Biden administration where we're seeing massive, massive crackdowns on the big banks, big uh, concerns, lots of big fines from different regulatory agencies. We have Michael Barr stepping up as a supervision chair over at the Federal Reserve. The heat is on for all the banks. And so that's kind of why when you see the Fed reviewing Goldman's consumer operations, it being a concerning thing because you know that the regulators are coming down hard. But the point I'm making here is that the whole consumer business is not winding down. There are still pieces left. And so how does this impact that go forward plan when one of the top priorities for David Solomon from his own mouth is to make that unit profit profitable? So that's the, the Wall Street perspective. Let's bring in a senior litigation analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, Elliot Stein, on kind of the legal perspective of this. Elliot, your initial take. Well, it's still pretty early, you know, to know exactly what's going on. But I think, you know, the concern probably is that in the wake of, uh, you know, the CFTB's crackdown on Wells Fargo, and, you know, before that we saw OCC fines against uh, Citibank, all related to retail operations, you know, I think the concern here is, you know, what, what's the magnitude of what the Fed is looking at. Um, but it's still very early to, to say, you know, I, I would say that, um, you know, just if the concern is that there's going to be some sort of like asset cap imposed that, you know, Wells Fargo has to suffer through, or is suffering through, um, it, you know, it, it doesn't seem like it would escalate to, to that level based on what we've seen so far. But again, it's still what? very early, and we, and we don't have the complete picture. 
what is Elliot just generally the problem that regulators have with these consumer businesses? What what are they doing wrong with regards to the consumer that's not sitting right with Washington? Yeah, well, you know, what we saw with Wells and City was that, you know, um, that, you know, consumers brought complaints to the bank. Um, you know, those complaints were not um, addressed properly. But there's just not enough robust compliance systems, monitoring systems to make sure that that consumers are protected. And, and you know, we, we saw that with, with the Wells Fargo penalty and, again, with the, the Citibank penalty uh, a couple of years before that. But do you know of any concerns that consumers have brought with regards to Goldman Sachs, Marcus, the Apple card, um, with that consumer part of the, the business? I, I haven't seen it. Um, you know, and, and like I said, you know, that, that's the kind of stuff that, that we may get more reporting on and then we'll have a better sense. Um, you know, I, w- one thing I haven't done, but maybe I'll do after this call, is, uh, you know, the CFPB does keep a... Uh, a database of complaints, so and, and you can usually see, um, you know, which companies were named in them. So, um, you know, I, I may take a look at that. Um, but again, this is the, Fed, the Federal Reserve. Although, you know, Bloomberg News did report, um, I think, a few months ago that that uh, the CFPB was also looking at Goldman with respect to uh, credit cards. Um, and but it was also reported in that article, you know, that Goldman is, comp- is cooperating with those in- that investigation and. I assume they're cooperating extensively with the Fed investigation as well. So that'll also help any potential fallout. Yeah, I mean, I think that CFPB uh, investigation that Goldman had disclosed last summer is an interesting and important. This idea that, and remember, this is a separate set of issues from the Federal Reserve. We said that's audit, that is compliance. But the CFPB, it reported... Just to remind listeners, that's the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that was set up in the wake of the financial crisis. You mean that's not an ordinary acronym these days? (laughs) I like to give everybody the acronyms. It's who you call if you have a problem with a bank, your bank. Uh, And so that... that, organization really spearheaded by Elizabeth Warren in the wake of the financial crisis, as you say, um, they're investigating, according to Goldman's disclosure last summer, uh, how the bank resolves bills, refunds cardholders, advertises its cards. I think another interesting thing that this happened years ago, but I want to point it out still, is that there was a lot of questions, and it's not the first time, of course, that the consumer business has come under pressure. I don't know if you remember, we broke a couple of years ago about the question of any potential discriminatory practices there with the technology. Technology. They were cleared of that. Um, but, you know, this is definitely a business that has come under pressure over time. All right. Elliot Stein, um, our legal analyst, Bloomberg Intelligence uh, legal analyst, and Shanali Basic, our chief Wall Street correspondent. Thanks very much for joining us on this breaking news. The Fed looking into Goldman Sachs consumer business. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. 
Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.